values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Governor Hobbs visits the border. Mixed reactions from people. Wait and see from a lot, but thankful that she committed to going to visit the border within her first 100 days and keeping that commitment. It is strange to me that a, a governor in a border state with everything that's going on at the border, it's an accomplishment just to go and visit the border. I, I don't understand any of this. I think both parties should be down there. Um, if you really want to find out what's happening, then go find out what's happening. Um, isn't it interesting that we've not seen uh, Nancy Pelosi at the border. We've not seen Chuck Schumer at the border. Uh, we're talking about leadership. Now, Nancy Pelosi is no longer the Speaker of the House, but she has been for a long time, and she was for the first part of the presidency. Um, the idea that you can't go down and have a disagreement or at least go down and listen to where people disagree. This is where I think we have a big divide. Um, not everybody on the border, not all border sheriffs think that there's a problem at the border. There are, are a couple of sheriffs that are in the Democratic Party that will tell you that they don't think that the problem at the border can be solved with law enforcement. And then you have others that are saying they don't want to see the border strike force broken up. I went kind of off on this topic earlier today. Because um, we are seeing um, devastation at the border that we may not recover from for a very long time. I want you to hear Mayor Nichols from down on the border talking about this um, and having a discussion of what's still happening at the border. Oh, I got to get that. I'm sorry. I hit the wrong button. There. What we're seeing now is that there's a lot of drugs that have not been intercepted because the the portal agents have been busy with the immigration issue. And so now we're starting to get hits because they have more free time. So what is the answer? What's needed? That just means we were missing all that before. If we have state resources, law enforcement that can come and help reinforce the border interdictions along the interstate, along the public roads, that would be a game changer. So talking about the need and the importance of the Border Strike Force. That Border Strike Task Force was critical in certain areas to make sure we had additional resources here locally along the border for the particular issues that we deal with. So for those of you that are not as familiar with DPS, you see DPS and you think state troopers, and they definitely are. We have uh, the men and women that patrol patrol the freeways. For accidents, for DUIs, tickets, we understand what they do. But that is just a piece of what the agency does. They have the statewide radio system. They have evidence storage. They have a crime lab. Uh, They have a crime lab for small towns that can't afford to have them. A lot of the testing equipment, DNA, um, the rape kits, things of that nature that people don't want to talk about. A lot of that is the supplementation to smaller towns and more rural areas is what DPS does. And, you know, on the border, usually most of the towns on the border are not very wealthy towns. And so their law enforcement agencies are limited, limited in workforce and limited in firepower when necessary. I've talked about this before in, in, in seeing it firsthand. It's scary to police officers. I'm going to go with deputies for a moment. Um, Pinal County, uh, I've talked about how they border the Tohono O'odham Nation and that the tribal land actually straddles the border. So when you come up through tribal land, the first American soil you reach is in Pinal County, and there's an area called the Vico Valley that is a known drug corridor. And in talking with some people in Pinal County in the Sheriff's Department, now this is 75, 80 miles north of the border, um, 
and maybe even a little bit more than that, um, they have people that are up on the mountains that are watching. Rival cartel members are watching, and they have two jobs when they're up there. They're looking for – well, actually, I guess it would be kind of three jobs. One of them is looking for law enforcement and informing members of their cartel how to avoid law enforcement. The other is showing members of their cartel how to avoid rival cartels that would rob them, or their other job would be to tell members of their own cartel how to rob other cartels. Because it is a war and it is a rivalry. But it is scary for local law enforcement. I would say that Pinal County is not one of those rural areas that is poor, you know, poorly staffed. But it is an area that it's scary because when local law enforcement, and I'm talking about the sheriff's office or even the Border Patrol, CBP, when you are listening to radio chatter and you are listening to lookouts, Describe you and where you are. Do they have rifles trained on you? I mean, this is the kind of thing they endure all the time. So we have small law enforcement agencies and some of these sheriff's departments on the border that are outstaffed for sure. They're outmanned by a mile. They're outgunned. They're outresourced. And what that does is leave that corridor open where these drugs, this poison coming into our state throughout the rest of our country, killing young Americans. This border security issue is such a big one for everyone. I, I mentioned earlier the three buckets, and I wish I could take credit. For this, but I can't. It was Juan Siscomani, the congressman, who who just said this so eloquently that the three le- I call it the three legs of the stool. He called it three buckets. One of them is immigration, the other is commerce and trade, and then the other is is security, border security. And the three of them are independent of each other, but they all work together and affect each other. And when you see this happening, this border security issue. It affects the other parts of it, trade and commerce. We know of major hospitals down on the border that say we have just spent $26 million, $26 million in medical care we've given out to people that will never recover, and it's going to break us. And then you're going to see that part of the state without any medical care, any significant medical care for um, – for that part, that part of the state, for the American citizens there, these are the kinds of economic things that happen as a um, as a uh, byproduct of the poor border security issue. It's how they affect each other, trade and commerce, um, it, it, immigration. I, I mentioned to this group I spoke to last week that. Um, Americans, a majority of Americans want less immigration. Well, the reason why we want less immigration and we're seeing more and more of it in people, the, the desire for less immigration is because people are fed up. People are fed up with illegal immigration. We've called everybody a migrant. And that's not – we shouldn't be doing that. Not everyone is a migrant. Some of them are illegal immigrants. Now, the designation isn't meant as an insult, and that's the way it's perceived. That's why we call everybody a migrant. But migrants to this country are people that come here legally. They do what's necessary to keep their visa or their green card and eventually work their way to permanent status of citizenship or otherwise. Or they fulfill their time in America working, and they move on, and they, they go back to their home country. But they obey American law. Laws. Those are the migrants. Those are the people we should hold up in the high esteem. People that cross our border Ill- illegally should not be treated the same 
is people that come to this country legally. They shouldn't be identified the same. They shouldn't be treated the same. And Americans will continue to support legal immigration as long as that designation is made. But when you muddy the waters the way we have, you see Americans say, I'm fed up with this. I'm tired of it. So this is another way that border security affects another leg in the stool, which is immigration. And we have to do something about this. In a moment, um, you know, despite the report, uh, we're going to talk about election integrity. Um, I want to go into some of the details of what the accusations are and if there's any proof now that we know that this report that didn't have any. But is there still stones that were left unturned? Is there more to talk about on election integrity? We'll do that coming up here in just one moment. and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. In trying to keep you informed and entertained, but keep you informed as we go through some of these serious issues in Arizona, last week I had the uh, chairman of the County Board of Supervisors, his name is Clint Hickman, and at the center of the controversy over election integrity on the show to talk about the report that was finally released by our current Attorney General, failed to be released by our former Attorney General. And so Clint Hickman had a lot to say about that. The interview was available on the podcast. Please go and listen to it. It was very compelling. I had a rebuttal interview yesterday um, and the rebuttal interview had a lot. Jennifer Wright is a lawyer. She worked in the election integrity unit under Mark Burnovich, Attorney General Burnovich. And so there was some details that she worked on the civil side of things, not on the criminal investigation side of things. So she would investigate things if they rose to the level that she believed it being criminal. She transferred it over to the other side. She handled civil violations, and she would not go as far as to say anything was done intentionally by the county to stop the investigation. But she said there were things that were requested that they did not get. And um, – just a little bit. What are the people? What are the people missing here? Was a question I asked her yesterday. Well, I looked. I've relooked over the April letter. There's nothing in the April letter that conflicts with any information that was provided in the March uh, 2020 general election. In fact, in the general election, it specifically says that there are violations of Arizona law regarding uh, ballot uh, regarding the chain of custody that is mentioned in the letter regarding the signature verification issues. I'll again state that there was a disagreement between criminal and civil regarding whether or not that the signature verification met the standards that we thought were appropriate. So there was a disagreement within the office between the criminal and the civil side about uh, signature verification. But the other part of this was about, I want to hear in just a moment, was about conversations with legislators. Here's some headlines. Arizona investigators say lawmakers who pushed election fraud claims had scant evidence. Um, election conspiracies continue at the Arizona State Capitol. At the Arizona Capitol, Republican leaders spotlight far-fetched election conspiracies. Those are just three headlines. Here's another one. Failing at the polls, election deniers shift focus to state GOP posts, including Colorado and Michigan. So it's not just in Arizona. I say that because um, I asked Jennifer Wright about this, that there was an opportunity for some of these key lawmakers in Arizona – 
that have been saying that they have evidence that the election was stolen to bring their evidence forward to the attorney general's office in this investigation and to bring it forward so that they could see the evidence. And from what I've been told in this report and the other things I've heard, that there was very little, if any, evidence brought forward. And some of these members of the legislature didn't even really correspond or go in and have a conversation. Here's how Jennifer Wright responded. So I would be the one to correspond with them to obtain what they had, and then I would on the information to criminal for them to do the review since all of the allegations were criminal. Um, so I can't say that I've got any, uh, that I, other than the cursory review of what I first received, I wouldn't say that based off of the, the September 19th Grisby, Grisby information um, regarding some of the things, I would say I would confirm that, that uh, much of what I saw did not have a lot of meat to its bones. And so I don't disagree with that particular issue. Meaning that there was not a whole lot of evidence brought forward, and so um, either they don't have it or they refuse to share it, and I can't think of a good reason to not share it. There's, you know, uh, cops solve a lot of cases with gut instinct, but you can't make an arrest based on gut instinct and what your gut is telling you. you got to have evidence. You can't get a search warrant unless you've got some evidence. Uh, I've talked about this before. Um, uh, you can, if I call the police and say, hey, you know what, across the street from me, there is traffic going to this house – traffic and car traffic going to this house 24 hours a day. People drive up. They walk up to the door. They knock at the door. They're there for 30 or 40 seconds, and then they get in their car and drive away. There's foot traffic. People that are not from this neighborhood because I don't recognize them going to this house at all hours. I think these people are dealing drugs. Based on information, you are not going to get a detective to be able to go to a judge and say, hey, the neighbor said this is going on. We want a search warrant. No. They have to do their own stakeout. They've got to send um, whether it's informants or other undercover officers have to go up and make drug buys. And then you go to a judge and say, we had information. So we acted on the information. We bought drugs there on two or three different occasions. We've had civilian informants buying drugs there on different occasions. We'd like to get a search warrant to go into the house. Then a judge signs off and says, now you can go do a search warrant. You have to have a level of evidence. When given an opportunity to go in and give your evidence, you give your evidence. I'm not saying this to demean anyone. I want to move on from this. We should have moved on from this a long time ago. There is a huge amount of division politically in this country anyway, especially in the state of Arizona, and it's happening within the Republican Party. Now, it happens in the Democratic Party. I mean, they've censured Kirsten Cinema to the point they've treated her so badly, she left that political party. She is now a registered independent, if there is such a thing, or, you know, she's an independent. But I'm concerned about my party selfishly as that sounds, and the fighting within our party has to stop. If Republicans are going to win elections, they're going to have to do it together. They're the number one voting demographic in the state, but only by a very small margin. In Maricopa County, they're number two. The number one voting demographic is independent voters or undecided, undesignated voters. And unless they have a huge number of those independents on their side, they're not going to win elections. Isn't it fascinating that the Democrats are of the top three, they're number Three. They're number three in enrollment in Maricopa County. They're number three in enrollment statewide. And yet they've made huge gains in the state legislature over the last few years. They've won the majority of offices in statewide races. We now have two. We have a Democrat and a former Democrat in the United States Senate. And we have a huge number of them in the House of Representatives. And it's because 
said they they despise Republican politics more than they despise the fighting within their party. And I can't say the same thing about the Republican Party. The Republican Party has a civil war going on that needs to end. They agree so much of the time on things, and yet they, they snipe each other over things that are deal breakers. And I'll be honest, the people that are um, – the uh, what they would say the the real Republicans they're the ones telling what they call moderate or rhino Republicans to get out of their party. I've not heard it from the other side. I've not heard those more moderate voices, what they call the McCain Republicans. I've not heard the McCain Republicans tell them to get out of their party, but it happens on the other side by major candidates, and I think it's something that needs to change, and I hope this helps change it. Uh, Arizona education. We're going to talk. I talked about a school that has an A plus rating and some of the things that can be done to keep that going. But I want to talk overall what's happening across the country and how has Arizona been an influence. We'll talk about that next. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. And thanks for being here. Um, I want to talk about schools as we do often. Um, and it, it's uh, there's a push now. What's going on in our school system? There is a culture war that's going on, and there's no doubt that there is. And I think we've watched the pendulum, and I don't care which political pendulum you're talking about. It swings left to right. It swings different directions. And once it gets to a breaking point, people usually swing it in the other direction. I've talked about presidential history just in my lifetime. You know, uh, after Nixon was was uh, was Ford, and B. Ford gave us Carter, and Carter gave us Ray. Reagan. Reagan gave us Bush 41, which gave us Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton gave us George W. Bush. George W. Bush gave us Barack Obama. Barack Obama gave us Donald Trump. Donald Trump gave us Joe Biden. And you think about that pendulum swing. Think about that swing of the pendulum. And it is that way with issues as well. <clears throat> Growing up in the in the time frame that I did, um, Gay rights has always been a thing. It has always been, whether it was called the LGBTQ, it, it was just, it was handled differently. Um, there is a movie that was a great movie in the 1970s with Al Pacino called Dog Day Afternoon. And uh, there was a lot of controversy about it because in the movie he was gay and he was uh, try, he was married, but he was gay and he robbed a bank in order to get money for a trans, for his trans boyfriend, girlfriend that was having the transition, transitioning to female. And so there was a lot lot of controversy, A, that that was the centerpiece of the movie, and B, that they were showing, in, in this time, gay and trans people in a negative light as criminals, and so the battle, you know, the, the pendulum swings. Uh, there was a demand made by the LGBTQ community for a long time that said, hey, listen, we understand that there's a lot of Judeo-Christian people that run our government, but you can't have your laws affect us living our lives. We have a right to live our lives, and they fought for rights. Well, that pendulum has swung from being on the right side way to the far left where now they are trying to force organizations, religious organizations, schools and otherwise into condoning what they don't believe in. So it's gone in the other direction which is going to cause it to swing back the other way. I just believe that it will. But there is a culture war going on in public schools and I'll be honest with you, I don't care. I know that sounds harsh. I know it sounds heartless but I don't care about the culture war. Here's what I care about. I care about the culture war replacing education. 
I care about the fact that as bad of a student as I was when I was in high school and I was a terrible student in high school, I would have been a genius by today's standards. When you are talking about over 50 schools in the Chicago school district that have no students that are proficient in reading or math, none that read at grade level or perform math skills at grade level, when you're seeing over 20 schools in in the uh, Baltimore school district with the same results, we all should be concerned as a society. We keep hearing this phrase, which I don't necessarily agree with totally. It takes a village to raise a child. We heard that during the Clinton administration. I think it was a phrase that Hillary Clinton coined. might have been part of one of her books. It takes a village to raise a child. Um, we aren't doing that because uneducated children haunt us all. They become uneducated adults. They become adults without a future. And then we all know the correlation between lack of education and crime. It's not poverty, although that plays a role in it. Poverty, a lot of times, is caused by lack of education. And I'm not talking about college degrees. I'm talking about the ability to learn. I'm talking about having the skill set to open a book and learn something. How many of you know someone... And I, I hear from many of them. How many of us know people that later in life, when I say later, in their late 20s or early 30s, that say, I want to change careers? I had somebody reach out to me and say, hey, I'm thinking about going in and being an air conditioning technician. What do you know about these schools? What do you know about these programs? Now, imagine someone <clears throat> who spends their youth. Uh, let's, let's go with the classic stereotypical example. Uh, someone that comes from a broken home. That has a single parent that is working multiple jobs to make ends meet. So there's not much oversight of homework or what you're doing with your time. So you spend a lot of your young years just kind of being a goofball and not doing anything. And you don't learn anything in school. You can't read very well. You can't read maybe at all. Math skills are terrible. You're not prepared. But somehow you get out of school, whether you quit or you graduate, and you move on to the next part of your life. Then all of a sudden you meet someone, you get married, you have a baby, and now you're looking at a human being that's dependent on you. And now it doesn't matter to you if you sleep on a floor in a ratty apartment, but you don't want your child doing it. So now you say, I want to do something with my life. I want to provide a career and a livelihood for my family. But I can't read, at least not well enough to crack those books. That's my biggest fear. My biggest fear is that when somebody decides it's time to straighten up, it's time to get my act together to some degree, you have to have the tools to do it. And we're not giving them those tools. So the culture war in school, I think it's you know one that we're all going to continue to fight. What's appropriate for children? What isn't? Should we have these overtly sexualized books in the hands of elementary school kids? There's a lot of videos out there, and I haven't put, downloaded them to talk about it. Um, But I want you to hear President Biden talking to teachers. I think these were teachers that had won the Teacher of the Year Award. I want you to hear this mindset. You've heard me say it many times about our children. But it's true. They're all our children. And the, the reason you're the Teachers of the Year is because you recognize that. They're not somebody else's children. They're like yours when they're in the classroom. They aren't. And that's the issue here. This is what bothers me more than anything else. And this is the this is what I believe is part of the failure in public education. There is a difference between caring for someone deeply. I'll I'll give you an example. Um, I can't think of a place that I feel safer 
than when I'm with my brother and his family because they just love me for me being me. My nephew, my nieces uh, just love their Uncle Mike, but they're not my children. Um, I would care for them. I would die for them. I would take a bullet for them. But when one of my nieces crashes her car, my insurance rates don't go up. When somebody in that family does something stupid, I'm not on the hook for it. My brother and his wife are. And when kids go bad, the schools don't pay a price. These teachers don't pay a price. The parents pay the price. They're not going to go, they're not going to flunk out of school and they're not going to fail at a career and go live with a teacher. They're going to go back and live in their parents' basement. So I understand the theory of we treat these children with such respect and we love them so much, but they're not our children. Our children are our children. And so all this theory that they know what's better for these kids doesn't fit in any other aspect of anyone's life. I want you to think about it. Name another area of your life where your children just do what somebody else says without your approval or input. Don't care if it's doctor, dentist, doesn't matter. If it involves your child, you get the final say. Your child can't get a tattoo. There are so many things that your child can't do without your approval. And yet the one area where they believe that this is absolutely the way it should be is in education. We have got to stop that mindset. We have got to get back to the basics. The culture war that's out there that is churning out what they believe is responsible, well-adjusted, tolerant, uh, inclusive people – They can't read or write. They can't perform math skills. So it isn't for me the culture war. I don't care about the culture war. I don't want to fight the culture war. What I want to fight is being illiterate. I want to fight an uneducated society because kids don't understand how important it is. I certainly didn't. I guarantee you this. Anybody that would be listening to this show right now that knew me in high school would laugh at what an advocate I am for education because I didn't care. I didn't care. But man, am I lucky that somebody else did. Man, am I lucky that somebody else made sure I had the skills I needed. We all need people like that. Coming up in a moment, we talk about Arizona's economy. There's some really good news, real estate, residential and commercial. We'll talk about it in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, we talked about this earlier today, about the good news. Housing markets are recovering. We're still seeing growth here. We have so far in Arizona, we have dodged the big crash that some had protected, uh, predicted in the Valley housing market. So, again, I'm not giving financial advice. Please don't take financial advice from me um, at all, ever. Um, and also in the commercial real estate market, one of the best in the United States for GDP, according to a new report. Arizona's doing well. But where I kind of went off on a tirade was a bipartisan group of senators talking about raising the retirement age on Social Security. A bipartisan group led by an independent from Maine, a Republican from Louisiana, is gradually raising retirement age to about 70 as part of the legislation to overhaul Social Security. There are a couple of things, a couple of factors in math that just are telling us where the problems lie with this. Number one, we are not having babies like we used to. 
So there are less people coming into the system and paying in. People are living longer. So they're jumping into the system and drawing on it for longer periods of time. It is really straining the system and doing the math on birth rates, on life expectancy. Just that simple math is telling people that Social Security is in big trouble, plain and simple that it's in trouble. As soon as a Republican starts saying that. And I'm one of them. As soon as it's being said, people on the other side of the aisle start screaming that Republicans want to get rid of Social Security. I would say to you, Social Security is on its way out on its own. So much so that now you have people saying we need to raise the retirement age, which means all of you out there that have been working your whole life um, and you're getting closer and closer to the age to draw on Social Security, it's going to be just out of your reach. I know this isn't the same, but when I was a kid, the drinking age in Florida was 19 years old. You could drink at 19. And I was like 16 or 17 years old. The Florida State Legislature raised the drinking age to 21. So I went from being a year away from it to being four years away from it. I just missed that bar. Now, when you're a young person, that's a big deal. Not so much when you're 55. You look back on that and think, who cares? But now think about being at that threshold of an age when you are entitled to Social Security. And just as you're ready to grab that and move forward with the rest of your life, you're now being told they're bumping the age up. And now you've got to wait again, continue working or whatever you're going to do until you get to that age. They're doing this to continue the shell game that says that because nobody wants to say Social Security is failing, especially people on the left. They don't want to say it because it's an admission that the problem that the, the program's in trouble. The program is in trouble. And again, I want to I mean this not as a Republican, not as a Democrat, not even as an American, as a parent, as a grandparent. Do you want your grandchildren dependent on that system for their survival? I think it's a great question. I, I'm never I, I shouldn't say I'm never going to because it'll come back to bite me someday if I do it. I'm not running for an office. You can sleep well at night knowing you don't have to worry about me trying to run for public office. But if I were in office, I, I would be horrible at it because I would handle this differently. I wouldn't run from this conversation. I would say exactly what I'm saying right now. Do you want your grandchildren beholden to this system? That doesn't mean that I'm saying it should be taken away from the people that have been paying into it for their whole lives or any part of their lives. If you're someone that is 30 years old listening to this show and you think, man, I'm a long way from 70. I'm not even halfway there yet. Is that money going to be there for me? The answer is yes, it has to be. The American government made you a promise at your birth, and when you certainly when you started into the workforce, that's why you have a Social Security number that it would be available to you. So, yes, yes, it will be there for you, and we're going to ensure that it is. Now, if I, I'm speaking as if I were elected official, but what I want is for you, Mr. or Mrs. 30-year-old, I want your child to have an option that maybe you don't have. I don't want your child to be fearful. 
And if there's a different way of looking into this where they can opt into something else, Social Security is never going away in America. But if there is a different opportunity, well, the reason why this is the same argument about school choice, the competition breeds excellence. And if there are young people that say, let's say this program started where there was an option of where you could still have the same amount of withheld money withheld from your um your job, your paycheck, based on your income, just like they do it now, the exact same formula, but that money was put somewhere else by your choosing to grow like an investment account. If in 20 years from then, the ones that invested their money are sitting on Easy Street and the ones on Social Security are still uh, still um, you know picking up crumbs, you're going to see a major shift. Now, I don't know that that's true, but I do know that if we don't look at different options, we're in big trouble because this program is in trouble. What we're going to do just after 11 o'clock is we got to talk about crime. The uh, rate of case closure when it comes to homicides is dismal. We'll give you answers next.